Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So, Kellen, now that we're recording video with these, I find myself having to actually think before we come to the studio to record about what I'm going to wear and stuff like that, which, I mean, I'm not thinking much about it, but before I was thinking nothing about it, right? So I could show up in like pajamas and like a t-shirt with holes in it or whatever, right? Um, but it made me self-conscious because I realized I only own one hat and I always wear my hat. Hmm. Well, I mean, I'm wearing sweats, right? So that's I, true. I think this is meant to be casual. Okay, perfect. Uh, yeah, I was like, do I need to buy more hats? And I'm like, why would I buy more hats just so I could record a, a podcast? Silly. I mean, that could be kind of your signature hat. We did have a, an entire episode on fast fashion. So I need to just make sure I buy sustainable hats. There we go. All right. So today's episode uh, of Building Up Resiliency the whole idea is to explain why resiliency or resilience is necessary. Um, by the way, I'm going to say resiliency a lot. I know it is a word, but resilience is the more, I think, appropriate word. It's the, it's the more, um, the one that seems to be used more often. But just forgive me if I say resiliency because I'm going to do it a lot. I think we'll all understand what you're saying. Oh, whew, okay. Um, resilience, why is it necessary, Right. We did an entire podcast, Breaking Down Collapse, on why resilience was going to be necessary. Today, we're going to talk about what we, basically our entire thesis for why society is going to collapse. We're going to try and narrow down everything we talked about across 137 episodes, bring it into, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes here. But we're also going to talk about some other reasons why resilience is necessary, strictly outside of collapse as well. Yeah, I think it's good to think of it in both directions because on one hand it's like the macro issues that will 
probably result in almost everybody on the planet needing to be more resilient than we are now. But even without all of those big macro issues and what we expect on a global scale, um, you know, everybody faces severe challenges now and again. Like, uh, there, there's obviously people that uh, have to go through a lot more in terms of challenges than others, but uh, pretty much nobody makes it through life without having experienced either a severe pain or distress or some sort of major trauma in one way or another. Yeah, and, and people who focus uh, some time and some attention on resilience principles um, are going to find that those things don't have to be as hard, right? Um, resilience does not have to be, and we're going to talk about principles of resilience next week, and this will be some some of the things that we'll touch on pretty hard there. Resilience isn't um, uh, either you're resilient or you're not. It's an entire spectrum. And moving up that spectrum at all is going to make you more prepared um, and, and better off to face any sort of challenges that come your way. So there could be, you know, for each person, even in a time of relative prosperity um, on the macro level, an individual could have um, an unexpected health issue, right? Or, or a health issue for a loved one that requires um, an increase in expenses or a decrease in income, right? Or the, the mental challenges that come with a tragedy like that. You know, you have job loss, you have um, weather issues that can, you know, ha cause problems with your home or whatever it is. There are so many little things that can happen in life that require or would be um, better, you'd be better off having some of these resiliency ideas in place. Yeah. And you think about anybody who it goes through something like that. Let's say a hurricane comes and does major damage to their house or they lose their job or they go through a divorce or they face a serious health issue or whatever it is. I think you could talk to anybody in a situation like that and they would probably say, Oh, I wish I would have been more prepared in this way or that way. And we can't like, we have to spend our lives living. We can't spend all of our time just preparing for what could happen. But there are those who have either built up their physical resilience or their mental and emotional resilience, their social resilience, whatever it is, that when those challenges come, they walk away with without the kind of scars, right? Or, or they walk away at all. Um, so it just feels like it for anybody being resilient is just a life skill that we need to have. It's going to make your life better. Uh, but when we add on top of that, all of the macro issues that we're going to be talking about in this episode, I think it's a pretty good case for everybody needs resilience. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think of resilience kind of like a really good insurance policy. As a matter of fact, having a good insurance policy on anything is a type of resilience, right? Um, a lot of people, like I said, resilience is a spectrum. So uh, you are somewhere on that spectrum already. Don't know exactly where you fall, but the fact that you have an insurance policy on your home or your car, right? Or the fact that you have um, some food in the pantry or the fact that you keep Band-Aids in your closet, right? Like those are little things that you do to prepare for something happening. Um, you bought band-aids so that if 
you got an ouchie, you could cover that up and not get an infection, right? That is a type of resilience. And so any little thing that you do that helps you feel more resilient, even if you never end up having to use it, it gives you a confidence, right? A state of mind feeling like I am doing something. I am prepared for if X thing happens. And even if it never happens, um, it was it will have been worth it to have done that in the first place. Yeah, you talk about having maybe a little bit of extra food in the pantry. If that's how you're operating, then if, if kind of a supply chain issue where something comes along and all of a sudden there's not food at the grocery store, like that little hiccup is, is going to feel just fine where otherwise it would be this huge tragedy. Right. But even if the supply chain issue doesn't happen and there is plenty of food at the store, like the fact that you have a little bit of extra on hand, you're still going to use that food. Right. And like, it's not going to do any harm. It's only going to do good. And I think it's that way with a lot of different facets of resilience I think those people that find ways to become mentally tough and put in the the energy to be emotionally resilient, every time a trial comes along, they're better off. But even during the good times, they're better off. And so I, I just don't see any cons to, to taking this kind of a topic seriously. Absolutely. Okay, perfect. So let's go towards the macro side of things a little bit talk more about um, the challenges that society faces as a whole, um, which is really, again, the whole purpose of our previous podcast. We took 137 episodes, all about 45 minutes to an hour each, to describe a very specific reason why society was in trouble. But there was an overall thesis behind it. It wasn't just like 137 random things. They all tied together, right? And I think there's a pretty specific uh, workflow as far as um, how to consider what society is going through and why it's in trouble. So what we're going to do now, we're going to kind of condense that down. We're going to try and walk through that, have a conversation about um, about what's going on in society. Um, and if, you know, we're not going to use like all the facts and figures and specific things from the podcast, but if you are interested in learning more, um, feel free to go to Breaking Down Collapse, listen to at least the first eight episodes, um, but really listening to it all will help kind of give all that information in detail. Yeah, and for those that haven't joined us along the journey as we went through all of those episodes, I think it's important to point out, like, we, we're not saying that everything about society today is worse than it used to be. Like, there are a lot of things that have gotten better, and there are all the technological advancements. You know, there are... Um, ways in which we're moving past certain barriers of racism and inequality. Like there's lots of things that are better today than they have been in the past. For sure. I think it's also worth noting that what we're talking about here isn't like a conspiracy. Yeah. It's not people colluding to make this happen. It's just the direction we're going um, as a, as a global society kind of naturally. Um, I think it's worth stating that like, uh, we're not, it, it, everything that we've talked about on the other podcast was all based on research and data and everything that we could pull together, um, that indicated we're moving in this dangerous direction. Uh, but it wasn't, we're not like 
doomers, right? We're not, we're not fear mongering or seeking to be alarmist. Uh, we're just trying to point out the concerning trends. And I think it, it plays a big part as we dive into this podcast, all about resilience to just understand that there are some big risks coming our way. Absolutely. And so I think maybe to start then, um, when we talk about why resilience is necessary, the whole idea of resilience is to be able to take care of yourself, right? And from a high level, being able to take care of yourself when the system can't. And it hasn't always been that the system was necessary or even existed to take care of us, right? Forever ago, when societies were what was considered simple, you would take care of yourself. If you didn't take care of yourself, if you weren't independent, you would die, right? Um, but over time, that changed. We went from these simple societies where everybody was independent. There were groups of people, right? There were tribes of people, um, but but those tribes were independent from each other. And so um, if a group of people went, uh, you know, died uh, in one part of a continent, a different group of people would not be affected by that. Um, as societies became what are known as complex societies, uh, that changed everything. Today, we're a hyper-complex society, a globalized society. And what that means is that we're no longer independent. And we have traded our independence for convenience. And in order for us to survive now, we do rely on this complex system to keep us alive. I think a very simple example of that or scenario is to just think about where our food comes from. In a simple society, your food came from hunting, gathering, foraging. You know, you, you would go out, you would find your food, and you would eat it. Um, today, where does your food come from? I mean, it comes from across the world, and there's a million steps in between to get it from where that food originated in nature to get it prepared, packaged, um, delivered, put in the grocery store, the money that you have to spend to buy it. Where did you get that money from your job? What is your job? You know, there's just so many intermediate steps between you and the food that keeps you nourished. That's one example. And there are a million other examples of that complexity. And so um, having traded our independence for convenience, relying on a system makes us less resilient. So the whole core of the thing is because we rely on this system, what happens if the system can no longer support us? And if that's the case, what do we do to be independent again? Yeah, and you rewind the clock just a few hundred years, you know, and especially if you rewind a few thousand years, you could find almost anybody and say, like, make your own clothes. And they'd be like, oh, sure, yeah, I can do that. Sure. Provide, you know, fire for yourself. Uh, provide food. Like all, all these basic necessities and people would be like, yeah, that's, that's what everyone does. Right. And if I can't do it myself, like I, I know the guy who does, right. I'm in a, maybe not everybody did everything, but the specialization was, was in such small groups that it was all very localized. Yeah. Whereas now, like you ask somebody to sew on a button and they might not know how. Right. Yeah. You ask somebody how to like grow any sort of plant that can provide them with food and they probably don't know how to do that, how to take care of it. And so, yeah, we just rely very heavily on 
the system on other people, which in some ways that gives us a safety net, right? Because we're all interconnected and we're all relying on each other. Sure. Um, but it also, and, and it also provides us with like a higher standard of living. Yeah. We get so ultra specialized uh, that we have so many roles within our society. Everybody can really dial in what they do well and do it at scale. And we all um, are inter- interdependent that way. But at the same time, uh, that creates issues where we become fragile. The complexity itself means it's this big, complicated machine. One of the cogs gets off and the whole machine breaks. Yeah, it's a great point to make that, I mean, obviously, globalization, uh, the advancements of technology, all of this growth, all of these things that we've come up with over time, they are they have been good things as far as increasing our standard of living, right? Increasing our quality of life, our life expectancy, medicine, all of these things have just done wonders for humans as far as their ability to to live longer and live better. But it, it, it introduces this fragility that you mentioned, this vulnerability, which is that if it all stopped working, or if one piece of it stopped working, the whole thing could cascade into failure. And suddenly you have 7 billion people who don't know how to fend for themselves. Not only do they not know how to fend for themselves, but there's too many people to be able to fend for themselves. We've created a system that we now rely on 100% to get by. And from there, you can consider that the system that we've created, in order for all of those parts to function and move, they require energy. So I think it's pretty apparent that in order to keep things moving, an input of energy is required to make that happen. Um, but simply, very simply put, we're not in a place where our energy inputs are going to be able to keep up with the requirements to maintain the system. Yeah, and, and as we're about to dive into energy in this part of the conversation, it makes me think of one thing that you brought up once as an example, which is like, what if a solar flare came along basically doing the same thing i know this is extreme as an example but like an emp where it just kind of fries all electronic components and like if that happened we would like millions of people would die right like airplanes would fall from the sky and satellites would stop working and people wouldn't be able to heat or cool their homes and you know like on and on and on and on you think almost everything we do relies on us being able to have electronics at work. So it would be total catastrophe for the whole planet. But if you compare that same scenario to just a few hundred years ago, solar flare comes along. And I think the way you had phrased it at one point was like, maybe people see some like auroras and, you know, some beautiful colors in the sky, but they just keep going on without even noticing. It doesn't impact their life. So that's just one example of how, dependent we are on the system that we've built up yeah well said um when it comes to to energy you know we introduce something called the eroi right some people call it the eroei um it's this idea of basically it's a ratio for how much energy you have to put in to get a certain amount of energy back out we use all sorts of different types of energy uh, to power our society right but the majority of them is non-renewable so right now it's around 85% of all the energy consumption that we have is from non-renewable resources, um, primarily things like oil, 
natural gas, right? And those forms of energy have a declining EROI, meaning that as time has gone on, we have to put more energy in to get the energy back out in a way that we can use and produce it. So um, in, in the previous podcast, we go into some detail on this and the numbers and, and everything involving EROEI, even some um, predictions and things like that that have been made um, by people who specialize in the field. But the, the idea being, as we grow exponentially as a society, we require more and more energy inputs to maintain these new levels of production that keep the system moving. And as, uh, as that energy becomes more and more difficult to come by, you know, this is, of course, barring some miraculous advancement in, like, nuclear fusion technology, um, it's going to hit a point where society simply cannot keep up any longer, and bits and pieces of society begin to be chipped away in a process called catabolic collapse that we'll talk to about in just a moment. But before getting to that, I think there's a couple other things to say about energy and, and a couple other foundational principles to lay out first. Yeah. Like one of the examples was, you know, oil, oil is just a huge part of our energy consumption. And sometimes people say, well, we've got, we've got, there's enough oil on the planet that we can keep going for however many more years. And that might be true, but where it used to be the case that it would take, you know, one barrel of oil to get a hundred barrels of oil. Right, that they, you needed that much energy, one barrel's worth, to get that kind of um, return on investment. Uh, but now, like over time, that's been shrinking and shrinking. Now it might be something like one barrel of oil of energy expended in order to get ten barrels of oil, and so it gets harder and harder. To, you know, as we get deeper into those reserves, those wells. Uh, trying to pump the oil out, it just becomes more costly. And if you're not familiar with all of the research that we've tried to present, or if you, if you haven't done it on your own, you might think like, well, hey, we're phasing out, right? We're moving towards renewables. But every single form of renewable energy, whether it's wind or solar or geothermal or nuclear or whatever it is, uh, they all have significant costs. Uh, and there are significant pros and cons. And with each one that we've taken a deep dive look into, it's just the, the research indicates that it's not going to save us. Yeah, we can make marginal gains here and here and there. But even as we are introducing more and more renewable energies over time, our use of oil and other non-renewable sources of energy continues to climb globally. Well said. And, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, we're headed towards what they call the energy cliff, right? Um, at some point, energy is going to, it's just going to stop being available at the rate that we need it. We're going to have a deficit. We will have hit what's called peak energy, uh, at which point society will require more than we're able to give. And like I mentioned, parts of society have to be sacrificed. Basically, part of this whole moving system has to be sacrificed, uh, and that begins to degrade quality of life, right? Uh, maybe certain parts of the world are hit worse first, and, and it just sends you tumbling down this um, sort of rapid hill of, of collapse. Um, that's one consideration 
when it comes to energy production and usage. The other is the effect that that energy usage has on the planet, right? So in a bit, we're going to get to climate change, for example, is one very big one. Um, but also talking about something called overshoot um, and the way that ecosystems, um, biodiversity suffers directly from our exploitation of the planet. Um, so we, you start to get into this, this idea of paradigms and paradigm shifts. If you consider um, that most people only think of the world from their worldview, right? From the paradigm they're currently in. And for most of us, that's, you know, 21st century. This is how life is. Um, it's, it's pretty much always been this way. It's hard to imagine where we come from and how fast things have changed. Earlier, we started the conversation by talking about simple societies. And when you consider how much of human life was lived in simple societies versus how much has been lived in these complex societies, um, it's remarkable how little time we've actually been complex, right? Humans evolved through simple societies. We evolved to live in simple societies. And so there's a paradigm shift to realize everything we're experiencing now is so, so very recent, and it is growing and changing so fast. We are in the smallest blip of, you know, a geological timeline. And so when you consider how fast we're growing, and consider what exponential growth really means, um, it starts to be very concerning when you see the changes that are being made to biodiversity and ecosystems. So this introduces an idea called overshoot which is basically this idea of a species overusing the resources in an area um, and that causing a die-off. So a very simple way to think about that is, um, you know, a pack of wolves that grows too quickly, overconsumes um, their predators, excuse me, their prey in an area to a point where that prey can't reproduce, the wolves no longer have food to eat, and the wolf population dies back until right? The prey population can repopulate, then the, and then there's a cycle. And so that's overshoot. And it's this idea that as humans, because of our rapid growth, our rapid resource usage, we have gone into overshoot. And there is, it basically necessitates at some point a dieback. Yeah. And when you talk about that dieback, it's not just dying back to the point that the population was at before. It's actually falling way under when you talk about wolves and their prey, right? Whatever it is that they need to feed on. Let's say it's wolves and rabbits. And let's say for every 10 wolves, you've got to have like 300 rabbits to sustain that population. Well, if the wolf population grows enough that there's not enough rabbits to sustain it, um, but those wolves are continuing to eat the rabbits. Let's say we drop down now to... There's only a hundred rabbits. Now the wolves die down and they can't even support 10. They can't support the level that it could before. So I think that's a, a, a overshoot is just such an important principle. And I think anybody that you talk to, you could say, Hey, there, the, if you think of the human population, we probably can't survive on the planet. If there's so many people on the planet that we're all just standing shoulder to shoulder, if we're all just crowded, right? And that's like obvious, but how far back from that can we sustain? When you cross the line. Yeah. What if there were just enough 
people that everyone could live, you know, if instead of standing shoulder to shoulder, we were all standing 10 feet apart. Well, we probably can't support that either. What if we're all standing 20 feet apart? Right. And, and it's not just the quantity of humans. Sometimes people try and debate, is it overpopulation or overconsumption? That's the issue. Well, there are multiple of each other. It's how many people we have at the rate that they're consuming. And so when you factor all of that in and you, you take a look at what like the research shows, we actually have already overshot by far. Yeah. We, we are vastly over consuming, uh, and we cannot sustain the, the, the population growth like this. We can't even, I say population growth. We can't even sustain the current population that we have perpetually and that's where this whole concept of limits to growth comes into play. And there have been a lot of different, uh, I guess, estimates kind of put into place of what is the actual, at our current consumption levels on average, how many humans can the Earth uh, support? Uh, and, and again, it varies and it's not a perfect science, but I've heard anywhere from like 100 million to about a billion, which is many, many less than we currently have, right? Right now, it's supporting us at a higher level, but it's only it can only do that for so long because we are eroding away at the systems that keep us alive, the ecosystems, the biodiversity, all of that. Um, you used a word a couple of times that's really important to the idea of overshoot, which is sustain and sustainability. That's the whole idea, right, of sustainability. Can we permanently support everyone that we have at their consumption levels? And the answer, I mean, you would be hard-pressed, I think, to find a credible um, scientist or person in this field who would say, yes, we're living sustainably. We can do this forever. Yeah, and one way I think is really helpful to look at it is most all of the energy that exists that we're able to use comes from the sun. Uh, You think of oil, right? That is the result of living things (laughs) that died a long time ago and we now get to burn that to get energy uh there's living things now you could burn trees and you could you could get energy from that um there's coal there's all there's all these other whatever it is that we're using when it comes to non-renewable resources it's pretty much all coming from the sun uh, but from millions and millions of years of storing that up and so one way to look at it is the earth is kind of like a battery and we, yeah, we still got, we've still got more life in the battery to use up, but at some point we run out. Uh, there's this term drawdown, right? Where we are drawing down all of these resources from the past that allows us to, yes, sustain our current population and our growth for a certain period of time, but that can't last forever. That's where there's not true sustainability. You think about um, fossil fuels, for example, and you think about what percentage of all the available fossil fuels have we burned through? We don't know that exact number. Some fields, you know, are still being discovered, um, but it's likely a relatively high percentage that we've already burned through. And we're talking, like you said, about uh, a resource that was created, produced over millions of 
tens or hundreds of millions of years in this extremely complex process, right? Um, and we've we've burned it we've burned it up in 250 years, and the majority of that has been in like the last 30. Um, so what does the next 30 bring, right? If we are if we and we're growing, so it's just a wild concept. Again, I mentioned a paradigm shift. It does definitely require a, a bit of a change in the in the perspective and the way you view things. And I think we also have to remember we're talking about this on a global scale. Because somebody might look at the U.S., for example, and say, well, the population is beginning to plateau in the U.S. And we're beginning to get, you know, some other forms of uh, renewable energy that we're introducing. But where the growth is really happening now is in third world countries, developing countries, where the population is booming still. And... As it's booming, they're also trying to catch up to the standard of living that we've had here in the U.S. So they're burning, you know, way more in terms of fossil fuels. So, like, we, we've got to keep that macro scale to see that we do continue to grow in our consumption, in the amount of natural resources that we're using up, um, in, in the amount of energy that we're using, and even with some of the efforts that are taking place, it's not likely that we're going to slow down anytime soon. You know, there's a great book called Limits to Growth that goes over this idea, this concept. Um, Limits to Growth, it, it, it was this study that was done by MIT. Um, they were using computer models to try and say, this was in 1972, by the way, what does the future look like based on current consumption levels, expected increases versus our known resources, and they ran the model in a bunch of different ways under a bunch of different scenarios to say, um, okay, well, what if we, what if we doubled the resource availability? And what if we slowed down the growth? And, and they tried all these different things. And it's interesting how consistent the models were. And pretty much every single one of those models, un I mean, unless you went wildly optimistic beyond anything that could ever really happen. Um, all of those models said sometime between the year like 2020 and 2080, it, it's not sustainable anymore. And and society goes through um, a deep period of shock where we die back based on our overshoot. Um, it's a fascinating book. It's a fascinating read. And um, we go into detail in our previous podcast about it. But it's just that is just such an eye opener to me. And when you talk about the different scenarios that they were running under these computer models, like they were saying, not only what if we doubled our resources, but also what if we were to find some way to like limit the population and not grow any more than where we're at, which was 1972. in 1972 levels. Yeah, it was it was less than half of it was like a fourth of our current population. Yeah, and what if with all those resources that we're using, what if we were somehow able to like cut down pollution and waste? down to nothing right right and they were going through like and we do this and we do this and we do this all these impossible things and yet still in one way or another it led to like a large-scale collapse and to me what's scary is that this 1972 wasn't the last time it was attempted there have been a lot of ways in which it has been replicated and revised and people have tried to see if if they use similar models or the same models where are we at based on where the numbers are today and consistently uh, they show, you know, these computer models show that we are headed towards 
a dangerous path. Yeah, basically, they've said it's remarkable how accurate those 1972 models have been, and possibly even a little optimistic. Um, so, yeah, just based on, on that information itself, I think we're in for some very interesting decades ahead, right? Um, there's another concept I think it's important to bring up that I had mentioned a little bit earlier, which is called catabolic collapse. And catabolic collapse is basically this idea um, that society reaches a level where it's no longer able to meet its maintenance costs. Um, there is so much to this idea that we can't get into right now, so we're going to simplify it a lot. But basically the idea is that a society has a maintenance cost, right? In order to keep things moving the way that it's moving uh, or to keep the status quo you have to put in a certain amount of resources, whether that's energy resources. Um, there are a lot of other types of capital that need to be maintained um, that aren't, isn't even physical capital, right? The societal structures, um, relationships. You have things, again, in regarding a complex society, bureaucratic systems, um, police forces, military, the whole judicial system, government and then all of the infrastructure that belongs to our society as well. It just requires so many inputs. The idea being that at some point, it's so complex and requires so many inputs that, like we said earlier, we're no longer able to meet all of those maintenance requirements, right? And at that point, the system, you basically have no choice but to decide which parts of that system are we going to sacrifice. And by sacrificing parts of the system, it then begins to have knock-on effects on other parts of the system, and that begins this cascading fall again towards collapse. And I think a really easy way to visualize this, which you did a good job of painting this picture in a previous conversation we had, was, you know, somebody might think, like, if I had $5 million and I knew that I wasn't going to have any income after that, I would just go buy a $5 million house. Um, because you know, then I'm all set. It's all paid for. There's no debt. And what they forget is that maintenance cost. Right. And so, uh, the example you gave was like this large estate and the, the, when the income for whoever owns that dries up, now they're having to choose between like, do I fix the, the, the potholes that are forming in the driveway or do I fix the hole that just broke through the roof or the lawn that's overgrown, or the paint that's chipping. And as everything starts to kind of fall apart, if you have limited resources, you have to choose where to pull that from. And, uh, you know, governments face this. We're seeing this all the time right now, where there's just not enough money to go around. And so do you pull from Social Security, or do you pull from your military budget, or do you pull from this or that, just to keep things running. And the more you have to do that, the more you just kind of spiral the drain. Yeah, that's right. And I, like you said, we're already seeing it. Catabolic collapse is a long process. Um, you know, I think a lot of people, when they might picture societal collapse, you know, the beginning, you said this isn't a conspiracy theory. This isn't something that like someone is conspiring to make this happen. I would add, it's also not something that happens fast. It can happen over decades and decades of, of slow, crumbling which when you when you think of the word collapse you think like something just suddenly falls right but we're talking about like 
you know, on a a long time scale. Which is still a short time scale, again, in in the, you know, relatively. Right. That's what I'm saying. Like if if you're looking at society over the course of thousands of years, if it takes 300 years for a society to fall apart, that still is just happening suddenly. It's collapsing. Exactly. But to those living through it, it feels like just kind of things progressively getting worse. Exactly. And so you could say we've been in this catabolic collapse cycle for several decades now, right? Um, And, and we will be for several more decades to come. And so maybe from beginning to end, it takes 60 or 70 years for things to get really bad, um, which for us, that's an entire lifetime, right? Um, But in a longer timescale, it's a blip. It was fast. It was a collapse of society. They say that most empires only last something like 200 to 250 years. Um, And our current sort of societal um, revolution, this age that we're in, well, we're about, we're about at that. You know, um, so this anyway, this cycle of, of catabolic collapse that we go through, um, it is going to be grueling. And one really interesting thing that I consider that I think about is the fact that and we talk about this a lot is that everything that happens in regards to societal collapse manifests itself economically. Right. We we don't see it as like necessarily a, a, a unavailability of food right? Or like all of a sudden there's no water and, and the normal things that we need to sustain life are just gone. We see it as a series of economic troubles. We talk about the financial system and economics and how true value, um, true money, it's not the green you know, dollars in our pockets. Wealth actually comes from the resources that provide, uh, that provide our, our livelihoods. We talked about the difference between primary, secondary, and tertiary wealth. And this idea that um, tertiary wealth, yeah, is the money that we carry around. You go back to primary wealth, and that's, um, that's, the, that's the, the raw resources needed. So um, even though we're affecting the primary source of wealth, we're overusing resources, we're making them harder to gather, all of that, um, that eventually makes its way to the the tertiary form of wealth, which is our pocketbooks. And that is what uh, what we have concocted as mankind, right? It's a made-up system, our, our economics, for keeping everything functioning. Yeah, and I think it's worth digging into that a little bit deeper just for a moment. Sure. Because when we talk about resilience, you know, we're using it as a broader term. Um, other people on a more narrow term are just talking about preparedness and, and like being a prepper, and usually in prepper conversations, they're talking about like a terrorist attack, right? Or suddenly this this big scary thing happens and all of a sudden everything's in just total disarray. Which like, sure, there's going to be shocks to the system now and again. Kind of like when COVID hit and all of a sudden supply chains were all broken and people couldn't find food at the grocery stores. Like there will be moments like that. But for the most part, what we're talking about here is... Like, as food becomes more scarce, it just becomes more expensive. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As energy becomes more scarce or more expensive for us to extract all that energy to, to provide it to the public, then that energy to the consumer becomes more expensive. And, uh, you know, there, that causes larger economic issues to where people, you know, maybe can't afford homes. They can't afford energy. They can't afford food. Uh, and things just gradually get worse and worse for most people. So when you talk about things almost always presenting themselves as economic issues, you can see how that happens. Even with like a big natural disaster hits the U.S. and the U.S. has to spend significant resources to try to repair all the damage and as we get more and more natural disasters right we're just putting more and more money and resources uh, to the point that it's going to impact everybody negatively in a more indirect way than we sometimes picture it yeah and, and as those natural disasters increase which we'll get to more in a minute um it goes back to catabolic collapse because that extra spending on those things has to come from somewhere. And where does that come from? Well, we have to choose which resources we're going to stop funding and, and so on and so forth. So um, in regards to the financial system, we've kind of talked about how, yes, we feel things economically that are happening on the back end, right? Overshoot. We're seeing that in an economic sense, but there's also this idea that the financial system itself is extremely unsustainable. Um, again, like I mentioned, economics as we know it has been man-made. It's been created on its own. So then you get into this idea of the financial system, um, what really keeps it moving, how does it work, why does it work, and how long will it work. Um, because of its unsustainability, um, it can't go on forever. We go into quite a bit about some of the um, interesting ways that money is made, how money is brought into existence and created. Um, the main point, I think, of that being that all money, or at least the vast majority of money that's created, is done so out of debt, which creates this increased need for debt. And the only way to continue growing that debt is to continue building things, making things, producing more and more, requiring people to go into more and more debt. You know, a really simple example would be is if we are required to increase the amount of debt to keep more money being created, people have to have uh, jobs. They have to be able to be willing to buy more vehicles, to buy more houses, and to do that with debt. Um, and so we've seen debt grow exponentially over time, right? The amount of debt that people and the amount of debt that nations and governments have is just exploding. Um, and at some point, that also becomes extremely unsustainable to a point where um, the debt cannot be paid, right? And as people begin to default on their debt, it creates a huge bubble. And that's a, a very large issue that we're currently experiencing. Yeah. And I don't think we want to dive into right now uh, all of the details of that and how 
like you said, basically anytime money is created, it's done with by adding debt. Uh, but if you just think about like, if we have a hundred dollars of debt, uh, but there's an 8% interest rate on that, like that's just going to continue to compound and grow exponentially, especially as we're creating more and more debt. So I think what you're saying is just like, we have to keep growing and producing more and more and more just to keep up with the interest on our debt. Um, let alone like pay that all down. And we only continue to grow that by creating more and more money as that interest continues to compound. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And if you haven't, if you're not familiar with the financial system, what we just said probably is very confusing. It takes a little more intricate explanation than what we just did. Again, that's done on the podcast. We dedicate an entire episode to explaining that idea. But the main core, the main thing to understand there is that debt is growing. The only way to manage that debt is to create more debt. And in order to do that, we have to continue to grow. And that just takes us down this entire cycle that we've talked about so far of all the inputs required to do that, whether that be energy or other resources. We've already overshot those. Um, but the financial system requires that we continue to grow and overshoot them more and more and more. And, you know, if there's a hiccup in that growth, if we're not able to grow to the point that we can sustain all of that debt, we've seen what happens when there are macroeconomic issues, right? You think of 2008 and just all of the damage that did to, to personal livelihoods, but also across the board, and how many years it has taken to try to recover from that. You look at the state of the economy right now and all of the economic headwinds, right? I don't think, I think it resonates for everybody when you say like, when there's economic issues, it's a problem across the globe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, One failure economically has huge sort of resounding effects on other parts. Again, we talked about the globalization aspect earlier, how we all rely on each other to succeed. You think of like Greece, right, in 2008. And, um, you know, Greece is perhaps a small nation. Uh, you would you would expect that the impact that one nation would have globally wouldn't be that big of a deal. They went bankrupt, right? They defaulted on their debt. And that had just enormous, massive implications throughout Europe, and beyond. And so um, to see and, and to to experience the economic issues that we've gone through, that we're currently going through, it's not too hard to see that it is completely unsustainable and that it's not going to get any better as the years keep rolling along. And to me, when you talk about that example of Greece, it goes back to what we were saying before, like globalization, it brings all these strengths, right? It allows us to have a higher standard of living, live more convenient lives like but it also makes us so fragile because we're all so interconnected we're so interdependent that it's basically a bunch of like dominoes set up all over the place and if one falls it's going to have ripple effects and impact everybody else yep well said so uh, i think from the economic side of things you can easily transition into the political side of things right Every decision that is made on the economic side, um, every decision that's made at all, it's made by a person or a group of people. Um, 
our entire society revolves around the decisions being made in the political sphere. You can both view everything um, from a political standpoint. You can also say that politics affects everything. And so um, I think it's, it's really important to understand the state of politics. Right now in the world, we're in a pretty precarious spot as far as geopolitics goes. Um, you talk about globalization and how interdependent everybody is. Well, everyone's interdependent. Uh, everyone depends on the decisions made by leaders of other nations. And we're experiencing this turmoil right now on a global scale because of the war in Ukraine, for example. Um, and, you know, there's all these ideas and thoughts and questions about wars happening in other places. And, and as we continue down this pathway of catabolic collapse, it ups the stakes and it ups the pressure and it ups the tensions between all these geopolitical forces and any politician uh, at any time making the wrong move, right? If you have the wrong politician in place who um, acts out of self-preservation or whatever that may be, could be all it takes to set off a chain of events that um, breaks it's basically the straw that breaks the camel's back and i think part of the reason why that is so important to consider is that the trust that we have in our uh, political system and in in our government is kind of the glue that holds everything together and keeps order right we've talked in the past about this like sacred aura of the center and this reverence that, that people have toward their government, or at least that they've had in the past. Yeah, say had might be a better word. Yeah, that has changed over, uh, you know, recent decades. Um, but when people don't respect or trust their government, th then that's when kind of law and order starts to break apart. Uh, people aren't willing to do things unless it's enforced. Can the government really... Uh, you know, put enough resources into trying to enforce every little thing. And if they do, that's taking resources from elsewhere. Uh, and you start to get splits and divisions, more uh, polarization, and, uh, you know, people start to get more upset with each other. Uh, you know, people start to see that there's this uh, system of, of wealth disparity. And there's like the working class and there's the overseer class. And as, as things get more desperate and especially if there's not that respect for government and government can't enforce and keep everything under control, that's when people start to find ways to even uh, the odds there and, and really uh, pull down those in power where possible, which uh, as great as that sounds, what that means is just uh, a lot of, chaos and and ultimately violence in some form or another right whether it's a, a revolution or a civil war um it, it there it's messy right and that's not to say that good things haven't come from revolutions because of course they have in the past right sometimes those actions are necessary and many would argue that today that is necessary um but it there is no denying that it's violent and it's messy, and it leads, right? It can exacerbate 
the economic issues and a lot of the other pressures that cause that can cause collapse. It, it basically breaks up the status quo and the system that we're used to. That system that we rely on to survive suddenly isn't functioning as as normal. Right, and if you it, you know, it might sound really extreme to even mention something like revolution or civil war, but if you just think about the last few years, and you think about all of the controversy that was going on, for example, with like Donald Trump, um, and all of the issues, you know, social issues, people were upset about police brutality, uh, systemic racism, a lot of marches in the streets that ended up turning quite violent. Uh, you got Jan six. Right. And, and as you start to see these things happen, you know, we, we kind of go through little patches where it's quiet and calm, but we're seeing these kind of things more and more frequently, uh, as people get more and more upset about their situation, the ways that they've been mistreated. Um, maybe it's frustration about the fact that they feel like they can't get by. They don't have enough dollars in their pocket to survive and they see the, all the wealth at the top, all of these contribute as people are politically polarized and feeling very upset about things that they see happening uh, at the highest levels of government. And as they have an absolute disrespect for the government that's in place, they're going to be more and more willing to take drastic measures. And then you mix with that all of the other complexities that come with a complex society um, and it, it exacerbates it. So you think about things like um, guns, right? The firearm problem that we are experiencing. You think about things like misinformation and disinformation campaigns, which are now so prolific thanks to social media, thanks to echo chambers, right? You think about the rise. Even more so as AI. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. You think about how as AI advances these new um, advancements with like chat GPT and these LLMs, um, it's already apparent that, that bots are everywhere, right? On the internet. But to think about the fact that these LLMs are going to be able to be used to really come across as people, right? And um, to be used in a pretty destructive force for mis- and disinformation campaigns is going to be, I think, extremely overwhelming. Um, you think about a lot of the other types of complexities that we have um, around, like you mentioned, uh, a lot of the, the race issues and equality. Um, you think about the media that we have access to. There's censorship, right, and corruption and lobbying. And there's just, I mean, there's, you could just keep listing them off. Yeah. And when you talk about that list, we're talking about, I'm, I'm thinking of the concerning trends that we're seeing. Like all of this is we're talking about all these big issues with, with the system at large. It can sound kind of like nebulous, but just look at the data that's out there about like gun violence. Uh, look at all, all of the the ways that we're trending in terms of mass shootings, in terms of suicides. Look at the, the loneliness epidemic that's taking place that was just talked about by the Surgeon General. You know, what is it? 50, 60% of adults feel lonely most of the time. Uh, most people don't have close friends. You look at rates of political polarization and ways that they can measure that, and they can see that that is like at very high levels. Yep, dissatisfaction with the government is at very high levels. 
Right. You look at uh, the Gini coefficient, which if you're not familiar with that, it's a term basically measuring, it's a way of measuring inequality. And we can see the way that that is increasing more and more as the wealth continues to accumulate at the top. Uh, you even look at, as we're talking about catabolic collapse, you look at like the Army Corps of Engineers and the way that they've rated our infrastructure at what, like a, a C minus? Something a, like that, a yeah. D. Yep. Um, and, and things, if you're not, sometimes I just want to grab people and kind of shake them and see like, can you, can, can you not see what's happening? The way that everything is eroding simultaneously because of the way the system is set up and because of all these societal issues that are all combining together. And so all of that is happening and we haven't even touched on one thing that uh, is kind of putting us in ultimate peril outside of all of that, which is climate change. Yeah, climate change uh, transition here is sort of the cherry on top of the cake, right? It's the catch-all. Like if if none of this stuff gets you first, climate change will come in and do the trick. And of course, climate change is also, uh, again, I use this word a lot, but exacerbating all these other problems, making, you know, accelerating them, making them worse along the way. Um, you know, if you don't, if you're listening to this and you don't believe in climate change or that the climate is changing, um, or maybe you believe that the climate is changing, but the humans aren't responsible for it. You know, there's, there's this argument that the climate's always changed in the past and, and this is just a natural cycle. Um, I would at the very least say the climate is changing. There is no denying that if you look at the science, climate is changing. If you don't want to believe that it's people doing that, if you want to say that it's cyclical and this, ha this has happened in the past, well, yes, it has happened in the past over tens of thousands of years, right? We're managing to make all of that happen um, in a few short decades, right? A century or two, perhaps. Um, and it's never happened when there have been 7 billion people on the planet before. It's never happened with the intricate systems that we have. Again, um, this system of globalization, we've never had to feed this many people. We've never had to rely on a steady climate the way that we have now. In the past, you want to talk about the, the, the humans alive during the Ice Age and how they adapted to climate change and act like that's the same thing as climate changing now. Um, many humans didn't adapt to climate change. They died, right? And um, just because humans survived that does not mean that the system that we live in could survive climate changing to that drastic um, extent again. And, you know, I, I think growing up, I used to hear about climate change and I'd hear people say like, oh, it's all bogus. It's all just Al Gore saying whatever about global warming. <laughs> right. Um, and I didn't know what to think. Uh, but because we've had the opportunity to do so much research and see that it's not just like, 20 studies out there it's not just a few hundred studies it's not just a few thousand studies like there is so much evidence out there of the way that the climate is changing and all of the negative impacts that are happening uh on one hand i used to think like oh it's sad it means that there's less polar bears right but we're talking about like we're in the sixth mass extinction event of the planet uh, like ecosystems are just getting absolutely demolished uh, by climate change. You look at the way that like wildfires and flooding and all these other natural disasters, hurricanes and uh, severe weather is increasing around the globe. 
And not only is it happening more frequently, it's happening more severely. It's happening in ways that it hasn't happened in the past. We're seeing records be set. And then the next year, more records set, the more, more records set the next year. Um, there's this idea of like, it's not just global warming, it's global weirding. And you're starting to see weather events take place in areas that are not prepared to handle those. So extreme cold in areas that haven't ever experienced that extreme heat in areas that haven't ever experienced that. And yes, it's having a dramatic impact. It's killing billions of animals. Uh, but that's also uh, having an impact on our food supply. It's also uh, causing direct deaths of people. It's causing, uh, you know, the sea level rise, which is, is, is affecting coastlines and it's causing seawater to get into, you know, the groundwater and affect agriculture. And there's just so many things that are happening all at once that just climate change alone is like major disaster for the planet. If you, if you forgot everything that we've talked about up to this point in the episode, and, and the only thing we talked about was climate change, that would be enough to say we are facing some extremely serious issues that does threaten uh, our way of life. Climate change is going to threaten the lives of hundreds of millions, if not billions, of people. Entire swaths of the planet over the course of the next 50 years will become uninhabitable due to temperature changes, due to things like wet bulb temperature that we've talked about extensively, um, due to food production, due to droughts and famine that it will create. Parts of the world that are already suffering with those, right? You think of places in Africa, for example, uh, certain areas of South America, um, Southeast Asia, that already struggle with extreme heat, with um, producing food for themselves. They don't necessarily benefit from globalization the same way that, um, that we do. And that's all just going to, again, be exacerbated. You think about mass migration, um, as these parts of the planet become uninhabitable and people are forced to leave those areas. And we think we got a problem with, with migration now. Imagine what life will be like in 10, 20, and 30 years when people are leaving by the tens and hundreds of millions to try to flee to inhabitable areas. Um, again, going back to the political issues and what the problems that that will cause um, with already polarized politics it's just, it's unimaginable to me to, to really consider um, what life will be like under a 2, 2.5, 3 plus degree Celsius change in the overall um, temperature of the earth above the baseline. A lot of detail, again, there that we don't have time to go into right now. Um, climate change was when I was, before this episode, um, I went through and kind of categorized our episodes from the last podcast to see where did we spend most of our time. And climate change is one that we spent an awful lot of um, ep episodes discussing. And I think because there's a lot of nuances there, there's um, a lot to talk about detail-wise. So uh, again, if you're interested in, in that side of things, go check out uh, that podcast and those episodes. Um, but one thing to mention with regards to climate change is this is a science, right? It's a, it's a science that is still being understood and perfected and learned about. Every week, um, in the bonus episodes that you and I do, Kellen, for Patreon, we discuss um, news that's happening, and it feels like there is always a new study about something climate-related, 
And it goes back to this um, tongue-in-cheek saying, which is faster than expected. Because those articles, whether they use those exact words or similar wording, are saying everything is happening faster than scientists uh, previously expected it to happen. Um, I think that scientists, there's this thing called scientific reticence, where scientists don't want to seem hyperbolic. They don't want to come across as overdramatic, right? And so they tone back their message to make it sound um, acceptable, um, to make it be more comfortable. Well, in addition to that, even when they're making an effort to be as accurate as possible, um, regard, you know, even if they don't care what people think and they're just trying to say it as it really is, every forecast for the future is going to be based on historical data. So they're looking at what has happened before. Right. And so as we keep having these records broken and things that are unprecedented, uh, their models uh, can't keep up with all that. There are things called feedback loops that we go into extensively talking about um, basically what a positive feedback loop is and how it feeds on itself to grow and change and how a lot of the, the, the climate models don't necessarily take into effect these feedback loops. And that's what these articles, that these studies that keep coming out are saying. Um, there was one just last week talking about how pretty much they discovered the potential that sea level rise could, could be double. It could it could go twice as fast as previously expected because of a, a new phenomenon that they found, um, but it was one that would have been covered if feedback loops had been taken into effect. And so it's not just that one study; it's dozens of st studies that continue to come out showing that feedback loops are having um, a, an exponentially rapid effect on the warming of the planet and the consequences that that has um, for people and biodiversity. So as you're saying all of this about climate change, you know, we we could go on for a long time about this. And there are topics that we're not even going to cover here. Like we're we're not even going to discuss all the evidence <laughs> for a, a an increase in infectious diseases and all of the different resources, not just like forms of energy, non-renewable energy, but even things like uh water and all of the crises we're having with water shortages, fresh water, um, peak soil, right. And, and peak sand and peak phosphorus, phosphorus yeah. uh, all, all these different resources that we are uh, running out of. That, that's something that you can go listen to our other podcasts. If you want to hear about that, there are so many issues that are all converging. And I think, uh, with all these different aspects of, that we talked about one of the biggest rebuttals that anyone might have is like, yeah, but we're advancing technologically. We're finding new solutions to problems. And I don't want to minimize the fact that like new technologies are extremely helpful. I'm always rooting for those new technologies when they come along. Um, but there's that question of, well, can we just sit back and let technology intervene is there any way that advancements in technology can save us from the path that we're on? So I know we've discussed this at length in a variety of different conversations on our other podcast, but maybe give us your synopsis of that concept. Yeah. I think it's really important. Like you said, to, to acknowledge the benefits of technology. 
we have never wanted to come across as saying that technology isn't good, right? Like you're saying, we applaud and get excited about certain technologies and, and hope for them. But in every single one of these technologies that we've done research on, right, whether it's renewables or nuclear fusion or, um, or fission or, or um, things like heat pumps, right? Like there's so many different technologies that people talk about and they say, this is the thing that's going to save us. Um, artificial intelligence, right, is a huge one. But no, no matter what, every time we go through these and we talk about them, um, there's all sorts of obstacles and downsides and reasons why those things aren't going to change what we have talked about so far in this episode. Um, they don't take away the vulnerabilities, right? They don't lessen the amount of resources needed. Um, some of the technologies would if they worked. For example, like fusion um, could solve so many of our energy issues. But fusion seems to always be at least a decade away. And um, even to this point, it, it feels like it's something that, that may never happen, right? Um, artificial intelligence, I, I think, will solve many problems. It will also create so many problems. Um, I saw a thing the other day talking about artificial intelligence, for example, that said nobody knows how much energy uh, or emissions chat GPT requires. But it's estimated that it's probably somewhere around the size of a small nation just to power this one platform. And this is a, a type of um, platform that's growing exponentially right now. So the point being, technologies are awesome. They do so many things for us. They solve problems, but they also create a slew of problems. And technology is not going to save us. In so many ways, um, it's continuing to complicate, to make more complex the issues that we're already facing, requiring, again, ever more resources, um, ever more capital. It's increasing the maintenance cost of that capital beyond our ability to sustain. And what's interesting about when technologies create efficiencies is that Jevons paradox. Absolutely. Right? All of the, the indicators that people just end up using more energy when efficiencies are gained. So as a really simple example, like people used to wash their clothes like once every few months, right? And and then when the thought was like, well, once the washing machine comes along, that's going to make it so that we're using way less energy on washing clothes. But because there's that efficiency gained, uh, now people only wear a shirt once before they feel like they have to wash it. And there's so many different examples of that. But if, it, you know, people look at something like artificial intelligence and they say, oh, that's going to be able to help us create these breakthroughs. Um, yeah, but then people are just going to use more and more energy, consume more and more. And with consumption, we haven't talked much here in this conversation about all of the waste that comes from that, all of the issues that come from waste and pollution. Maybe that's again, just yet another thing to go listen uh, to the other podcast if you're interested in learning more about that. But uh, I think it's a long way of saying you are absolutely right. Like all these great technologies that come along, they solve some problems and they create other problems for us. When it comes to potential solutions, right? Um, we won't go far into this, but 
But people say, man, you guys are doomers because you're not presenting an optimistic scenario. You're not giving us the solutions. And I think that the truth is that while there are things that can uh, alleviate many of the problems of collapse or make collapse less severe, right, could lessen the fall, um, they simply aren't realistic because they would require a complete change in the global paradigm. Um, the entire way that we operate, we, we, we talked about, for example, the financial system and how it requires growth in order to survive. Um, we would have to completely change the way the world views economics. There's this idea of degrowth, which we've talked about, and how um, we need to view our economies, a successful economy, not based on growth, not based on um, how much money is in the system, but based on how many people's needs are met um, and how we can meet basic needs without growth, without this extravagant lifestyle that we have. But it would require sacrifice, right? Um, one of the main ideas of our other podcast, Breaking Down Collapse, is that in order that there's basically two ways to collapse. There's either a forced collapse that comes upon you because you try and continue to grow exponentially forever, or there's a voluntary collapse, which is a collapse you bring on yourself. It's a less harsh collapse, right? You choose to sacrifice, to degrow, to stop consuming how much you're consuming, to lower your quality of life and your standard of living, to perhaps lower your um, life expectancy on average, right? In order to slow the consumption. Um, but that doesn't feel like something that the world is ready to do. Our current economic systems, um, capitalism in itself, is not going to allow for that to happen. It's not that we don't want it. It's not that we don't want to believe that we can avoid collapse. But it feels like whether it's a voluntary collapse or whether it's an involuntary collapse, in the end, resilience is what matters. Because either way, your standard of life is going to decrease, your quality of life. And resilience is the ability to be ready for that, to maybe even take it on yourself, right? A big piece of resilience is collapsing your own lifestyle a bit to become sustainable so that when everyone else's lifestyle collapses around you, you're not stuck in the shock. Um, John Michael Greer has this saying, uh, collapse now and avoid the rush. The idea being become resilient now by simplifying your lifestyle so that as it's forced upon us, um, we can we can transition to that more easily. Hence the idea of the phoenix, right? That That theme we have here with the podcast where it's like in some legends of the phoenix, right? It actually... Uh, lights itself on fire, right? It, it allows itself to be reduced to ashes so that it can rise with a new life and do things in a better way. I think if we truly want to be resilient, there are things about our life as we, as we're living it now that we have to be willing to sacrifice and give up and kind of start new doing, doing it in a, in a different way with all of that. Um, you know, I think most people that I know, like, uh, first of all, they probably don't even know that we've done this other podcast, Breaking Down Collapse. Right. But those that do learn about it, I think they're a little bit surprised because they're like, you seem like a, 
like you're a, you're a happy person, like a happy, optimistic person. You don't seem like you're just depressed all the time. <laughs> and I think it's because like, yes, the global situation is depressing. And uh, with everything we've talked about and all the research I've seen, I'm convinced that things will get harder. Things, things in general will get worse. But where I have hope is uh, in that personal resilience and the fact that like there are things that I can do within my control, maybe not to fix the whole world, but that I can at least be prepared for what's to come. You know, I think about my children. Sometimes I get a little bit panicked and scared about the future that they're going to have to face. But then I think like there are things that I can do to help prepare them uh, and help make sure that they're resilient and can handle the challenges that are going to come. So that's why I get so excited about this topic, this whole podcast that we're launching here. Like resilience really is where I think a lot of peace of mind and happiness can come despite all of the macro challenges and micro challenges that we can anticipate. And look, I think there are uh, there's a large group of people who focus on these macro challenges, on the idea of societal collapse. And uh, I've seen it in online forums and communities where there's this sort of disgust towards people who are trying to be optimistic about it, right? The idea, I think, of this podcast, like you said, Kellen, we're not trying to say we're going to save the world. Um, and we said it in the last episode, we're not guaranteeing success for anybody, right? It could be that thinking this way, thinking about resilience is simply a form of coping, right? It's simply a way of saying the future is so scary. I have to pretend like there's something that I can do to control it. Right. But to me, it doesn't matter if I am nervous about the future. If I see that the future is going to be hard and dark and scary, and that there are terrible things coming, I have to focus on what I can control. Right. And really from a psychological standpoint, if I've done what's in my power, then I can rest easy knowing that, that it doesn't matter what else I do. It doesn't matter how much I worry. It doesn't matter where I put my mental efforts. I might as well not think about it at all as long as I've done what I can. And, and I want to be able to say that. I want to be able to sleep at night saying, I'm doing what I can. Um, even if those are small steps, even if, if, if it's just a little bit here and there, um, I am making advancements. I'm, I'm trying to improve my own life and my own resilience and then I can live the rest of my life without having to dwell on the hard stuff, on the fear of the future, because that fear becomes, at that point, pointless. Well, I don't know about you, but, you know, I leave this conversation feeling kind of pumped. Like, I'm, I'm really excited to uh, dive into what we're going to be talking about next. Next week, uh, it's all about those principles, right? The, the fundamental principles that we're operating under as we... I get into how to be resilient. Excellent. I'm excited. Let's do it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.